We're so grateful for Paula and John, for Randy who leads us tonight. Carlos, we probably should have said this morning, had a family wedding in California that he had committed to long before he knew he would be here, and so he is there, but he texted us today and uh, said, uh, I was thinking about you and praying for you, and we'll be delighted to have him home uh, next week when we worship together again. Well, in our chapel series, in our walk through the Bible, we have come to the writings, haven't we? We looked for some time at the history in the Old Testament, and then with Job, we started a new section, Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Those are all five writings, uh, literature in the Old Testament that we call the writings. Um, This book is... uh, really made up, the book of Psalms, of five books of hymns, each ending in a doxology or praise to God. And since we're thinking about confession tonight, I think I should start with a confession and just say, I love the Psalms. I've probably, as we walk through the Bible, I've probably spent more time walking in the Psalms than in any other book of the Bible. And I feel like when I read the Psalms, do you feel this way, like I'm walking into my living room? sitting down in my favorite chair, eating my favorite meal. I feel at home. And I know I've not lived in them as long as many of you have. And you have stories to tell and understanding that only comes from years of living the Psalms. But I have to tell you, I've lived them long enough that they've become wonderfully familiar. You've perhaps heard me say that they provide the rhythm of my devotional life, that daily, every day, I love to read a psalm. Some years ago, I spoke with Robert Sloan after he had um, left Baylor and, and uh, had come down here, and we spoke. And he said to me, I find in my life, even though I'm a New Testament scholar, that the psalms are the book that I return to again and again. That is certainly true for many of us. It was Abraham Lincoln who said to a friend about the psalms, they are the best I find something in them for every day of the year. Luther called the Psalms the Bible in miniature. Mark Deaver observes, Psalms is the Bible's longest book. It contains more chapters as well as the longest and shortest chapters in the Bible. It is, by the way, more quoted than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. That is, the New Testament quotes it more than any other of the Old Testament books and it wasn't long ago, was it, on Thursday mornings? My friend Marty reminded me on Thursday mornings, not long ago, we did six sessions on the Psalms. Broadly, you remember, we looked at the various types of Psalms, Psalms of praise, Psalms of adoration, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of confession. Remember the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms where you call down curses on those who have bothered you on that particular day. And I told you about a friend of mine who says, I invoke that whenever I need to. Well, we've talked about those psalms. And um, I just thought as I prepared this week that we ought to read all 150 psalms tonight. I'm just kidding. I just thought this, that if I did six more studies of six sessions each, I still couldn't do justice to the psalms. I couldn't adequately teach a single psalm in a single setting, much less summarize 150. So breathe easily tonight. We will not be frenetic. We are not going to read and push through all of the psalms. Instead, I'd rather like to think with you that we will stop at one beautiful spot 
and just sort of survey the land. We'll not uh, try to walk through the whole forest tonight, but we'll look at a tree. If you would like to know my fuller thoughts about all of the Psalms, I recommend those six sessions to you. I think we probably have those on CD or podcast somewhere. You can pick them up. But we will breathe the fresh air of forgiveness before we sit at the table together and feast on the Father's forgiveness. And I have chosen Psalm 32, not because it's my favorite psalm of all, but because I think for us tonight, as the Spirit leads, it is most appropriate for us. And I've entitled this message, Gospel Singing. I don't know what gospel singing connotes to you. All my life, gospel singing sounded like the best thing in the world. And as I've grown older and talked to people who are much more informed about music than I I've learned that in some ways it's sort of uh, marginalized as a, as a bit, uh, gospel singing is marginalized by some as, as a bit uh, simplistic. I'm not talking about forms of music tonight. What I love about David is that in this song, he writes the gospel. He tells the story. He tells our story that people like us who have sinned can experience the blessing of being forgiven that we can experience God's grace. And not only can we experience it, but we can share that grace with others as well. So would you open your Bibles with me to the 32nd Psalm, and let's hear the word of the Lord together. Would you stand with me as we read God's word tonight? And David writes, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Psalms, and thank you for this particular Psalm, for the chance to just rest under its shade tonight, just to experience the truth of who you are. God, I pray that you would reveal some insight to us tonight about yourself that we did not know or strengthen some knowledge that we once had but perhaps have forgotten over time. And I thank you, Lord, for the grace that we have found in Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Walter Brueggemann has described the Psalms in three categories. Really, there are many different ways of sort of trying to catalog and categorize. It is true that there are some we know that are filled with praise, and there are Psalms of thanksgiving, like Psalm 100. We know there are Psalms of testimony, like Psalm 23, which means so much to us. Psalm 27, I think, falls in that same kind of category. There are Psalms where people are in trouble, and they're seeking out the help of God. Psalms like Psalm 42 and and Psalm 46 that meant so much to us, I think, in those days after 9-11. There are psalms that talk about thirsting and searching for God, like Psalm 63. There are psalms that remind us of the brevity of our lives, that time does not last forever. They sort of feel more like Proverbs. They have a proverbial kind of ring. Psalm 90 falls in that category. But Brueggemann says... Really, if you look at them, there are psalms of orientation. Those are psalms that when you read them, you you sense all is right with the world. A Psalm 8 comes to mind. Psalm 19 comes to mind. All is right with the world. Then there are psalms of disorientation where where, for instance, the writer of the psalm is saying, I'm in a lot of trouble and I need help fast, or I am really mad at my enemies, or somebody pulled the rug out from underneath my life. Remember that? Or I pulled the rug out from underneath my own life. And then there are psalms of new orientation. There are psalms that look back at a bad time and reflect on that and say, but God has brought me out of my pain, out of my sorrow, out of my struggle into a new place. Which kind of psalm do you think Psalm 32 is? When you read the first couple of verses, you may say, well, it sounds like a psalm of orientation. He's talking about the blessing of those who've been forgiven. But as we read more closely and he begins to testify about his life, we realize we have stepped into David's private quarters and David is telling us a story. He's telling us the story not only of the time that he sinned with Bathsheba, but of his response to that sin and how for a while He tried to pretend like he had not sinned. He tried to clean up his own mess. But we remember the story from 2 Samuel. That didn't really work very well for him, did it? And ultimately what he says is, as long as I was trying to fix my own sin, it was like I was carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. But the very moment I confessed my sin to God, he delivered me. This is a psalm of of new orientation. More specifically, we would say a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance, the most famous. We read part of earlier tonight. Thank you, Randy, for including that in the service because Psalm 51 is the most famous. And in fact, I think that both Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 relate to the same experience. But how do they relate to each other? Psalm 51, we see, is a psalm in which the raw emotions of David. I believe these are the words, the song that he wrote out of the very depth of repentance, right as he realized, as Nathan looked him in the eyes, told him the story about the man who killed the other man's lamb, and when David was incensed, said, by the way, David, you are the man. You're the one who did that. And out of that, David comes to a place of repentance. And Psalm 51 is almost a concurrent experience. He's saying, this is what I feel. Forgive me now. But in Psalm 32, he is reflecting back on that experience and talking about how God has restored him. And remember in Psalm 51, after he confesses, he makes this promise, then will I teach 
transgressors, your ways. Perhaps Psalm 32 represents David's fulfillment of that vow. He's keeping his promise to God. He said, God, after you forgive me, I will teach transgressors your ways. And sure enough, David in Psalm 32. Now that bothers us because we're trying to think chronologically, but the Psalms are not arranged chronologically. They're arranged in those five books of hymns, each ending with a doxology. And don't be thrown by that. What you need to see is if you try to place this in the context of David's life, Psalm 32 comes after Psalm 51, and it's a psalm in which he just recognizes what God has done for him. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, an insight has come to me. Uh, listened a lot to other preachers. I'm not exactly even sure which preacher I heard this from, but I listen on podcasts from time to time to sermons. And I remember hearing one preacher say, we misunderstand the gospel We still don't understand the gospel. We are more involved in moralism and Pharisaism than we are in in the simple gospel that God is the God who forgives us of our sins. And here's how you can tell whether or not you really understand the gospel. When you sin, Christian, when you sin, what do you do? And if your answer is, I really feel badly I live with the shame and the guilt for a season. I try to make up for what I've done. And after I've sort of cleaned up my act for a while, then I go back to God and say, wow, I really made a mess of things. If that's your idea of the gospel, I want to set you free from that tonight. Because the gospel does not teach us when we sin to run away from God like Adam and Eve, to hide our sin, to try to... In fact, he says there in verse 2, the person in whose spirit is no deceit. And it's a deceitful sort of thing to either say, I never sinned, or to say, I can fix this on my own. No, the gospel does not teach us to run away from God and hide from Him. Psalm 32 tells us that the gospel, far from saying you have to hide your sin or hide from God, he says, no, God is your hiding place. And when you sin, instead of running from God, why not run to God and discover that the God of mercy who sent his only son to die for you on the cross is the very same God who welcomes you as the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter, to come home to him. Do we really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I think sometimes as we rail against the sins of others, we sort of leave the impression, you know, those people are just beyond forgiveness. And some of us experienced the grace of God so long ago That when we encounter people, as we often do in ministry, whose lives are an absolute mess, can I just say, I have ceased to be amazed. I used to say it never ceases to amaze me how much trouble people. I've ceased to be amazed. People can make a real mess of their lives. But here's the thing. If you and I are in ministry long enough, if we are involved in church work long enough, we will encounter people and eventually begin to believe, you know, I probably deserve grace more than a person like that does. Or we think, something about what I am doing is earning God's favor, something about my service for the Lord. And what will happen is if we begin to believe that, then when God blesses other people, we become rather like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We begin to resent grace. We become like those workers who hired on with God for a wage, so to speak. And then when God gives the same wage to people who've worked for much less time, we begin to grumble about that. Even though God made an agreement with us, 
I mean to say it's easy over a period of time to begin to look at other people askance and to say, well, those people are in a lot of trouble. I'm so glad. What did the Pharisees say? I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner, that publican over there. But the publican was too busy beating his own chest saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I believe that you and I must come back to that first fountain of grace. We must come back again and again. We must, as Matt Chandler says, preach the gospel to ourselves. We must remind ourselves that all our righteousness as an effort to please God would be of the same equivalent as filthy rags, says Isaiah. Not one thing have we done to earn God's grace. We um, say with... uh, The songwriter, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. It goes on to say, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is gospel singing. This is is David saying, the person who has been forgiven, verses 1 and 2, is so incredibly blessed And we give thanks for the fact that the person who has been forgiven by God is so incredibly blessed. And we learn that Augustine found in Psalm 32, his very favorite psalm, he literally had it inscribed on his wall. Remember, Augustine lived a life of licentiousness and sin before he became a Christian. And he wanted to be reminded constantly of the great grace and mercy of God. So he kept Psalm 32 before him as a reminder that our God is the God who forgives us of sin. Rick Warren said recently, There are two strategies to deal with your sin. One is you do something about it. The other is you let Jesus Christ take care of it for you. You can't choose both options. In pride, we could try to handle our sin for ourselves. I think that's what David is talking about in Psalm 32, verse 3, when he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Remember, there was a a period of time in which after he sinned with Bathsheba, after he had... uh, Uriah killed, that he married Bathsheba, brought her into the palace, and, and tried to pretend like nothing had ever happened, like he hadn't done anything wrong. She was expecting a child. He knew that. The child that was born was his child. The child was born, conceived out of a sin that they had committed. But from David's point of view, all's well that ends well. And he just tried to conceal that. When I kept silent, he says, listen to his experience, my bones wasted away. Like Adam and Eve, he was trying to cover his sin. And he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Why? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I wonder, what is your haunting sin, your secret shame? Or is it perhaps a public mistake that you have made? Some of you know the name of Noble Doss. Noble Doss dropped the ball. Remember that story? It was one ball, it was one pass, it was one mistake. It was in 1941. More important things were going on in the world. World War II had begun, but he uh, cost the Texas Longhorns a national championship. Turns out, University of Texas, no surprise to those who followed their recent success, they were ranked number one in the nation. Uh, They were having an undefeated season. They were seeking a berth in the Rose Bowl. They just had one last game to play. It happened to be in Waco, Texas. 
And uh, with a 7-0 lead in the third quarter, Noble Doss, this excellent receiver, ran out to catch a pass. His quarterback saw him streaking 20 yards behind the nearest defensive player. All he had to do was put it in his hands, and the quarterback threw the perfect throw. And Noble Doss, who was such a sure-handed receiver, somehow reached up and missed that ball. Later, the Bears scored late in the, in the game, and it was a tie game. It cost the University of Texas their top ranking, consequently their chance at the Rose Bowl. That may be what that whole thing this summer was about. I don't know. But I, I think about that play every day, Doss admits. Not that he lacks other memories. Think about it. He says, I think about that play every day. Listen, Noble Doss has been married for 60 years. He's got children He's got grandchildren. He, he served in the United States Navy. He's in the Texas Hall of Fame. He, he, he intercepted 17 interceptions while he was at Texas. That's still the school record. He had an amazing, amazing run. He had two years in the NFL. But when he introduced himself to Mac Brown, when Mac Brown became the new coach, it was 50 years after the fact, and the first thing he said to Mac Brown was, I can't believe I dropped that ball. Now, here's a guy who's haunted. I mean, think of all that he's accomplished, but that one thing is still, am I going too far to say that's the defining moment in his life? He had a chance for glory. He missed that chance. He's done many other things, but in that moment, that's the one mistake that he cannot forget. And you and I know people like that who have lived amazing lives, but who would look back and go, I remember that one thing that I did, and I cannot forgive myself. Now, what I want you to notice about David is David's one mistake most public mistake, was a really bad mistake. I remember I was teaching this at HBU one time, and one of the students hadn't heard the story, and I watched his jaw drop. I mean, his jaw just hit the floor. He started shaking his head. Finally, he said, Dr. Brooks, you, you don't mean he did that. I said, he did it. David did it. David, the King David, he couldn't believe that King David had sinned and committed adultery and then murdered the, 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 the man who was the husband of the woman he'd committed adultery with. I mean, just, it was just mind-boggling. I mean, this is a tremendous. But I want you to hear David in Psalm 32 say, the defining moment of my life is not the mistake I made, but the grace I received. As long as David was trying to conceal his sin, as long as he was allowing that to define him inwardly, that was a great burden in his life because unconfessed and unrepentant sin brings the wrath of God upon us. Now, here's where we get this wrong. We think if we do something wrong and we confess it, God's going to really zap us. The silliness of that is God already knows what we've done. He already knows what we've done. And so it's not as though God, God's wrath is revealed against us if we confess our sin. No, the wrath of God is revealed against unrepentant, unconfessed sin. And the thing that he says about this sin is that it weighs upon us because we feel God's hand heavily upon us. That's the wrath of God on our unconfessed sin. And he says this sin saps our energy. I think when we relate to this, he says, as in the heat of summer. Just like the weather outside can kind of take away your energy, he says, unconfessed sin will do that to you. But the good news is, God is the God who forgives. I mean, the bad news is, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But the good news is, when we confess our sin, listen to what he says, then I acknowledged 
Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He uses every word in the, in the Hebrew language there. There's sin, iniquity, transgressions. These are rebellions. These are twist, uh, twisted kind of sin. Miss the mark. All of those are included in those definitions. And what he says is, you forgave the guilt. But what I want you to notice is how every time, as he mentions every one of those sins, he owns it. He says, my iniquity, my transgressions, my sin, my guilt. He is taking responsibility for his own sin. And we live in a day where the mantra is, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And as long as we live under that mantra, if that becomes our modus operandi, if that's the way we live is blame somebody else, we will discover that we can never be free from the burden of guilt and the weight of our sin. James McDonald writes, choosing to change in five days. He says, day one, I went for a walk down a street. I fell into a hole. I didn't see it. It took me a long time to get out. It's not my fault, he said. Day two, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell in the same hole. It took me a long time to get out. Why did I do that? Day three, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell in the same hole. I got out quickly. It is my fault. Day four, I went for a walk down the same street. I saw the hole. I walked around it. Day five, I went for a walk down a different street. There must come a day in our lives when we repent and stop going back. There is that verse. It may be your least favorite verse, but it's memorable, isn't it? It's picturesque when the scriptures say, will a dog return? I'm not even going to finish it. When it. Will a dog return? And there comes a day when we say, no, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired, I'm going to make a different choice. And by the grace of God, I'm going to live a different way. No, in pride, I may try to deal with my own sin and and experience the consequences of that. But in repentance, we can cry for help and we can run to the Savior. And David owns his own sins and he invokes God's forgiveness. He begs God for forgiveness. I love the way he confesses and he repents and he turns from his sin. As far as we know, David never committed adultery again. You say, but, but he really did commit adultery. And that is absolutely true but he never committed adultery again. And my word to you is that God wants us to learn from our mistakes. I love the song, I repent. And have you heard Steve Green sing this? I repent and offer no excuses. I repent, no one else to blame. And I return to fall in love with Jesus. I bow down on my knees and I repent. I wonder if you confess your sin. How often do you confess your sins to God. We ought to name them by name to confess is simply to agree with God, to say the same thing as God. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have discovered that fewer and fewer people are going to confession. Remember, perhaps some of you remember 30, 40 years ago, I remember that was a big part of the practice of the Roman Catholic uh, faith. And uh, that now 42% of practicing Catholics say they never, practicing Catholics say they never go to confession. Only 2% confess regularly. I was wondering, I dare not ask, what is that statistic among Baptists? How many of us confess our sins? And they say, well, maybe it's part of the Catholic uh, theology that's involved. Others say, no, it's really more cultural. It's America's aversion to any type of accountability. Still, the bishops throughout the Catholic Church are alarmed. This is what they say. Confession isn't about rationalizing or explaining the way the wrongs we do. It's about having the courage to admit them and experience the healing forgiveness that's waiting. Now, that little little statement is absolutely true. That confession is, is not 
is not about rationalizing or explaining away the wrongs that we do, but confession is about admitting our sins and experiencing the healing forgiveness that's waiting. And by the way, we, we don't have to confess our sins to a priest. The Bible says we can confess our sins to one another and that we have, we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so many of our great gospel hymns uh, speak to this um, one of my favorite hymns, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. You know that hymn. David invites others to follow his example in verses 6 and 7. He says, let everyone. Why? Because everyone has sinned. Steve Camp used to sing, he is for everyone. Anyone who wants him can come. He's not for some, but for everyone. He is for everyone. David writes, let, let the godly pray while God may be found. There are seasons of closeness when we must seek him. We must not procrastinate relationship with God. We um, sing in the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Listen to what he says there in verse 7. I love this. He says, you are my hiding place. God, I don't hide from you. I hide in you. When I sin, I don't run from you. I run to you. Is that your story? Have you come to the place that immediately when you sin, you recognize that and you turn from that sin? I'm not saying, uh, you know, it's easier to get uh, permission than forgiveness and God's going to free. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is if you and I will cultivate in our own spirits and in our own hearts, this truth that God is the God who loves to forgive his people. And then instead of being afraid of God when we have sinned, instead of distancing ourselves from him, instead of running and hiding in the garden like Adam and Eve, we will run to him and discover he is the God who loves to forgive us. David instructs us from his own experience. He says in verses 8 to 11, I will instruct you and teach you. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be stubborn like the mule. As a Montanan, I, I love the movie. You remember the movie, A River Runs Through It? It's the story of a Presbyterian minister who's very disciplined. He's a, uh, he is a, a fly fisherman, and he's raising his young boys, Norman and Paul, there in, in Montana. And uh, the older boy, Norman, makes some good choices, while Paul, the younger boy, spends most of his time in self-destructive behavior. And you can even see it when they're young. At the age of 10 and 8, they're sitting at the kitchen table. They're supposed to be eating their oatmeal, but... The younger boy, Paul, refuses to eat his oatmeal. And his father, who's played by Tom Skerritt, says, Grace will not be said until that bowl is clear. We are not going to be dismissed from this table until you finish eating that. Man has been eating God's oats, he says, for a thousand years. It's not the place of an eight-year-old boy to overturn tradition. And Paul continues to sit quietly and stubbornly, and everybody waits for a response. The clock begins to move, and finally it shows 12.15 in the afternoon, and Paul sits alone, still staring at his oatmeal bowl. His father's at the desk on the far side of the room. And finally, the, the pastor walks to the kitchen table, joined by his wife and Norman, the older brother, and they sit down, and the father sits down and says, Grace. And all four stand up, and they kneel beside their chairs, and they put their hands together, and Reverend McLean prays, O oh God, Thou art rich in forgiveness. Grant that we may hold fast the good things we receive from thee. That is, God, help us to eat our oatmeal. 
And as often as we fall into sin, we are lifted by repentance through thy grace. But while he's praying, remember in the, if you've seen the movie, the older brother looks over and the bowl of oatmeal is still full. There has not been any repentance. There has not been any change of heart. This boy is stubborn and as powerful as his father's will is, the boy is more stubborn. And if you remember the movie, in his stubbornness, eventually he loses his own life. And may I just say to you, may God deliver us from the stubbornness. May we have teachable hearts. Wicked people, he says in verse 9, find many woes. But the righteous people, those set right by God, trust him and rejoice because of God's unfailing love and forgiveness. Just last night, Chase uh, called us in and showed us a video about uh, a boy who had sinned against his father and was so afraid to tell his father what he had done And finally, he had no choice because his sin was made known. And the boy came to his father and expected his father's punishment and found that his father embraced him instead. In fact, he asked all the people, who all has committed this sin? And as they came forward, the king, the father, embraced every one of them. I dare say that even though we came to Christ and found forgiveness, some of us us live with a practical Phariseeism. We despise the sins of others. And so when we sin, we despise ourselves and our lives are filled with self-loathing. But if we could come to understand the greatness of God's grace, we would run to him, not away from him. Mark Buchanan tells about a a woman named Wanda who came to his church. Uh, She was a woman who was addicted to drugs. She was involved in all kinds of other types of sin. And uh, one night, He preached the gospel, and uh, she received Christ, and then they were going to serve the Lord's Supper, and as was their custom, he had preached about servanthood, and he asked the servants to come forward. He was speaking about the deacons, like our men who are sitting here on the front row, but Wanda came forward. She had found Christ. She wanted to be a servant, and she was ready to serve the Lord's Supper on the very first day she had ever come to church. It's a remarkable story. The pastor said to her, since you haven't done this before, allow me to help you, and here was this woman who had just received forgiveness for the very first time, serving the Lord's Supper to the congregation. It was a bit out of the ordinary. You could imagine the experience. The rest of that story, I think I've told that part of the story too, but the rest of the story is that that there were about eight months there where she was in and out of rehab. She was trying to do the right thing. It's very hard to do the right thing. And then for a whole year, she just dropped out of sight. Nobody knew where she was. It turned out she had been in a rehab in Vancouver, and she called when she completed that rehab and said, would it be okay if I came home? Could I come back to church? Of course, the pastor said, we welcome you back to the church. He didn't recognize her when she came in because she was so changed and transformed. She looked healthy for the first time. She looked actually healthy. And at the end of the service, in their service, they call people to come forward and pray with with prayer ministers who pray with those who come forward. And so when the pastor extended that call, Wanda walked up. She walked right up to one of those prayer ministers, walked, blew right past that person, walked right up on the platform. And she began to just lift her eyes heavenward and to worship God. And there was a member of the congregation who didn't know Wanda, but saw that she was worshiping and came up and put her arm around Wanda. And there they lifted praise to God like the one leper who returned to give thanks. Wanda showed that there is new grace for those who seek the favor of our Heavenly Father And that night, there was great worship and gratitude in the congregation because one who was a sinner had come home. One lost 
sheep had been found, a prodigal had returned, and there was great rejoicing, not only in heaven, but among the people of God. I come to you tonight recognizing that we have sinned. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have made mistakes. And there's no sense trying to figure out which one of us is the worst sinner because it takes the blood of Jesus to forgive every one of us. My call to you tonight is to receive the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to call upon his name and find his favor. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. If you will receive it, God would forgive you if you would turn from your sin and turn to him. Perhaps you came here tonight running away from God, but I invite you now to run to him. You don't have to hide from God. You can find a hiding place in God. Run to him, Jesus, lover of my soul. Let me to thy bosom fly. Let us run to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the forgiveness that we find. In Christ our Lord, thank you for gospel singing that is 3,000 years old. Thank you for David's experience of grace and for his instruction to all of us that we might learn. And tonight, Lord, I pray that you would help us to eat the bread and to drink the cup and to remember what Christ has done for us and in remembrance of you to experience life. We ask it in the strong name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.